Tonight is the first of four talks on the, the spiritual centers, which also correspond to the instinctual drives. And um, I'll be talking about uh, generally about what this is, and then one of the centers, and then the next um, three talks after this for the next, for, they'll be split up a little bit because I'm going to be away teaching, but um, I'll do one talk on each of the centers. So uh, I thought we'd start then with a meditation that relates to the centers. And one of the, one of the ways of working with this is really through Vipassana. So go ahead and um, get comfortable, find your, your upright and yet relaxed posture, really feeling your feet on the floor and your seat on whatever you're sitting on and bringing as much alertness as possible, but also feeling a sense of, of ease and settledness and relaxation. And then we're starting with the belly center, which is about three fingers behind the navel and two down. So it's, it's in that area, it can, it's, you know, it can be quite a large area, but let's start with bringing some breath there. So it's very similar to what we would do in Vipassana. So we're gonna really use Vipassana to explore here. And I'll just give some guidance at the beginning and then you can go on on your own if you want to continue with the belly center, go on to a, a more general Vipassana. So bring some breath to the belly. Noticing the rising and falling of the belly. Bring your awareness. Settle there and collect there. Letting go of your day, whatever it took for you to get here. Now bringing your attention to the, the body. So using a mindfulness of the body to feel into this part of the body. You can use the breath to just, you know, bring some energy there. And also using a gentle kind of curious investigation of this region. Noticing any physical sensation, or even if there's nothing there, if there's a blankness, that's still something to notice.
It's fine to notice the breath as well as the physical sensation. And seeing if it, if it stays the same or changes as you have your attention resting there in this area. Letting it be however it is, not needing anything in particular to happen. Just being curious, interested. And you might notice as we expand beyond the body experience that there might be some sense of emotion that's attached to whatever you're experiencing in the body sensation. Yeah, there might be, maybe there's a tightness and some tension. Or maybe there's a solidity and a sense of groundedness. Whatever it is, just letting it be there and noticing if there is any kind of emotion connected to what you're noticing. Again, letting it be however it is. And even if there's blankness, we can notice that. And like many things, that can change. Impermanence is the only real constant. Need some breath in. And then as we continue to explore it, there may even be a thought involved with the body sensation, with the emotion. There may be a thought about, oh, hmm, there's a tightness and a sense of anxiousness, and that's related to. So that is a possibility of whatever you're feeling, there might be thoughts that come, and to let those arise and just notice that that's a thought. And then lastly, we can bring in the foundation of mindfulness, of Vedana, of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Noticing this area of the belly center and whether the sensations or thoughts or emotions that we are experiencing are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. 
not needing it to be a certain way, just being interested. Seeing what we can find out about how it is right now. And continuing on like this until I ring the bell.
Noticing where your attention is now. And if you find that you've gotten caught up and identified with what you're noticing, we can always come back to the breath and the belly and start expanding out to other aspects of phenomena gradually. Seeing if it's possible to notice all of these things arising without getting caught up and identified with them. And if we do, just noticing that without judgment, without self-criticism, saying glad we noticed and then coming back.
And in these last few minutes, bringing our energy down to the center in the belly, to feeling our seat on the cushion, whatever we're sitting on, feeling our legs, feeling feet touching the floor, taking in that sense of support of what you're sitting on and the earth itself that's holding us, feeling our own grounding as we make this contact with the belly center that is our base. We'll take a five-minute stretch and bio break, and then I will start the Dharma talk. Okay, I'll go ahead and get started. And as always, I invite people to turn their cameras on. It's not required, but it does uh, help with building Sangha. So then starting um, with this series of talks, four, four talks on the four spiritual centers, and the corresponding instinctual drives. And um, it, these aren't really talked about a lot. They aren't part of Buddhism necessarily, unless there's a part of Buddhism that I'm not aware of. The Hara is sometimes talked about in Zen, I know. Um, but mainly I'm, I'm taking these from my time with the Diamond Approach and also the Sufi tradition, which is part of the Diamond Approach. So, and when I gave this talk once before, I had a number of people there who were Qigong practitioners and were very interested because they work with the centers in the Taoist tradition. But I, I don't have really, I have done Qigong for years and I know a little about it, but I can't claim to have any expertise about that. So I, it was an interesting conversation. I learned some things from these Taoist practitioners who, um, who were there, and it was it was wonderful. So, um, so there are four centers then. So the centers, these are not chakras. 
there are chakras and it's very worthwhile learning about them. The Hindu tradition really focuses on them and, and yoga, uh, which is part of the Hindu tradition. And I, I have done a lot of work with those over the, over the years, but these are considered, these are different. Um, some people would consider them to be kind of deeper in our um, physical and or energy body than the chakras. And um, they, what's important about them is that they correspond, well, there's many things, but one of the things is that they do correspond with the instinctual drive. So all of us, we're all, we're mammals, which sometimes we forget, and all mammals have this, these three lower instinctual drives that we have. And this is part of what helps us survive. Without these drives, uh, an infant wouldn't survive if it couldn't, you know, if it wasn't calling out to, uh, to the parent to feed it when it needed to be fed and, and other things. So these drives are very, very primitive within our, uh, our being as, as physical beings. And if we don't work with them, they can really be running us under the surface without even really knowing that it's happening. So on the spiritual path, it's really helpful to be aware of them and to be actually including the knowledge of them as part of our path. Um, and then there's the fourth center, which is the enlightenment drive that is not uh, present for all mammals and not even present for all humans. So I'll go through the four drives and the centers now so you can get a sense of them. And then I'll talk generally about what they are. And then I'll talk specifically about the belly center tonight. So we have the belly center and that corresponds to the self-preservation instinct, um, which is, uh, you know, basically the drive to keep us alive. And all the other ones, including the enlightenment drive, um, come from this main drive. So the belly center really is the foundation for everything. And in some traditions, it can, it's considered to be the most important. Although um, on the spiritual path, I think that all of them are important, but it's the most fundamental center. And it's called in the, um, it, it's called the Kath, the Hara, the Tantian. These are all names for it. Then there's the heart center, which is, you know, the middle of the, the chest where, you know, it's not over where the actual physical heart is. So it's in the middle. And these form a column right in the middle of our body. Um, the heart center um, corresponds to the, what is called sometimes the one-on-one -on -one instinct, but it's basically the sexual instinct that includes not just sexuality, that urge to, you know, have sex, but um, parenting, child raising, um, and also the one-on-one -on -one relationship. That's really how I think of this instinct. It's the drive for that companionship you get with one individual, you know, those, those special individuals that we really feel um, we have a, a trusted relationship. And you, most mammals will notice that you feel a lot sleep, safer sleeping at night when there's somebody else with you, because if you're really sound asleep, maybe they'll hear the saber-toothed tiger coming, you know? When we're a mammal sleeping all by ourselves, we're not as likely to survive. 
So, you know, all of these are very primitive in our system and especially for mammals like humans, which are pack animals. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute with the social instinct, but so we have the heart center, then we have the head center. And um, this is in the inside of the head. Um, and uh, this corresponds with the social instinct. So the social instinct is really about the tribe. And we'll notice that of the other mammals, the great apes, because they have such complex um, social interactions, they are the most like us. I mean, basically that's what we are is apes, you know. Um, but that really expands the head center, having all those complex social interactions. So the, the social instinct is about the tribe. Am I part of the tribe? Am I, uh, what's my status in the tribe? Um, what if I get kicked out by the tribe? And this again is a huge fear of humans because the, one of the main punishments for humans was getting kicked out of the tribe. And if you were kicked out, your chance of surviving was not good. Just look at wolf packs. I love wolves and I have a number of videos on wolves and when a wolf doesn't behave, they kick that wolf out and that wolf is not very likely to survive. Some do and some form new packs, but we have this deep in our DNA that, that I need that tribe to survive. And that is why the number one fear of humans over death is public speaking. Have you ever wondered why that is? It's because of our fear of, of maybe I'll say something wrong and they'll kick me out of the tribe or maybe I'll lose my status and I won't get food today. You know, so um, these are hardwired. These are hardwired into our drives, into our nervous system, just like the animals. I've been watching the birds and they're all, you know, out there with getting ready for babies and things like that. They're totally driven by, by these drives. We're not that different. In the Diamond Approach, Hamid Ali, one of the founders, goes by the pen name A.H. Almas. He says that basically humans are the instinctual drives with a thin veneer of civility on top. And all you have to do is look at the news for five minutes to see how true that is, unfortunately. We've got people out there killing for no good reason because their tribe is better than the other tribe and their tribe feels it needs the thing that the other tribe has, basically. You know, you've got all kinds of um, human behavior that shows us how, how attached and identified we are to these instincts. And um, so these are the three drives that all mammals have. And then the fourth drive, the fourth um, center is over the head. It's a transpersonal center. And it, this is where the enlightenment drive comes in. And when the other centers are open and aligned, then it's possible for that center to actually become active and felt. Um, but the enlightenment drive, if you're here tonight, you have an enlightenment drive because you probably wouldn't be practicing um, meditation and spiritual practice unless your enlightenment drive was active. And this is the drive that some humans have, not all, but some humans have a drive for awakening for knowing our deeper nature for understanding it is there something that I am beyond the body beyond the personality that I think I am that might 
go beyond that, beyond the physical realm, that these things are conditioned. They're conditioned in the physical realm. And the Buddha was really telling us, look, you can know what you are beyond that, beyond what's conditioned. You can know yourself to be what is unconditioned. And so the enlightenment drive is active in some humans, but have you noticed not all and not many actually. And you know, now that I've been teaching 17 years, I can really, I really believe that one can't activate someone's enlightenment drive. That has to come from the person. It's something that a person seeks their own spiritual path because it is a drive. And people who have a strong one, it's just like the other drives. It can be just as strong as the other drives and even more so. I mean, this is why in the, in the old days, the way they took care of the lower drives because they're so powerful was monasticism. We just take it all away. You don't own anything. That gets rid of the self-preservation instinct. Well, it doesn't get rid of it. It's a way of just suppressing it kind of. No sex, everybody's celibate, no children, no families, no offspring. And you get rid of your family in the society, you come behind these walls, and now you're going to be a monastic and warrior society, warrior tribe. And for those people, they had an enlightenment drive because they were, I mean, at least some of them, they were giving up the life as a normal person, whatever that is, but as a, as a householder to dedicate their whole life to um, renouncing those things and to seeing if they could know something deeper about reality. And so some humans have an active enlightenment drive, but a lot don't. And it's kind of mysterious, you know, there could be reasons why that is, I could make up reasons, but I have just noticed that it's true. And some people have an extremely strong enlightenment drive, you know, people will do a lot for their spiritual practice. I mean, I, one of the interviews of me, you know, I did a year long solo retreat. How insane is that? I can't even imagine doing it now, now that I'm older, you know, but they asked me about the, a lot of the interview was about the enlightenment drive. It wasn't meant that way, but you know, it's, I have I always had a really strong one. Um, so people will do a lot for their practice if they're, you know, depending how strong your one's enlightenment drive is. And the center is transpersonal. This is why it's not in the body, it's near the body. So there is something personal about it, but it's also a center that um, goes beyond our individual consciousness. So those are the four centers. Um, so why, why are these important? I talked about that a little bit. Well, first of all, they're driving our behavior, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. They're driving our behavior. And, and all of us have one of the drives that's the strongest. The other two may be a close second or maybe not very active at all. So when I go through all four talks, you might go, yeah, this is this is the one that I have the most energy for. And it might, it, it's not necessarily the one that works the best. It's just the one where that gets a lot of our attention. Um, it can block our progress on the path if these drives are running on autopilot and we're not conscious of their automatic operation, basically, you know, because they're so instinctual, they can really run our, um, our 
our behavior, our practice in ways that we don't have a chance for the enlightenment drive to basically, um, it's not exactly take over, to become primary. So what's possible is that for most humans, they see it this way, that are practitioners. I've got these drives. I've got my family. I've got money. I've got being a member of normal society and people understanding me, or I've got awakening. And I can't have both. I hear this all the time. People, I just did a what is awakening retreat, which is what the one I do at IMT in January will be. And I get this, ask this almost every week. If I wake up, am I going to have to give up my family? And, you know, the answer is, well, not necessarily, but I don't really know the answer to that. You know, everybody's different, but this is just a reflection of the concern. People feel like it's an either or. I can either be a normal human and, and, you know, the way we see a normal human life, most humans, and they're good humans, these are good people. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this at all. If you grow up, you get a good job, you meet someone nice, you get married, you have children, you become a good productive member of society, you pay your taxes, you do some volunteer work, you retire, you've taken care of yourself, you, you know, raise your grandchildren, and you die in your sleep. You know, this is kind of what, this is a good human, this is the life, this is the American dream, you know, this is the life that people want, and that's wonderful, and, and people who have that life are wonderful contributing humans. So, but basically, we're just living out those three drives. If that's the totality of our life, we're living out those drives and we're, we're being a good human. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But once the enlightenment drive comes in, all of a sudden, it's like, ah, what do I do with that? Nobody gets it. And there's this sense of conflict. But what can happen over time on the path is that the three lower drives serve the enlightenment drive. Instead of being in conflict for a long time, they're in conflict. But at some point, the lower drives can actually be in service to awakening. And so my, the fact that I am alive on, in the physical realm is in service to either my awakening or maybe other beings, helping other beings. And that doesn't mean being a spiritual teacher. We need awakened accountants. We need awakened grandparents, you know, all of this contributes to the human condition. So that's not necessarily what I'm saying, but, um, you know, our physical existence is happening because of this higher potential that humans, as far as we know, humans are the only mammals who can actually know their deeper nature. That might not be true. It might be true that, um, that elephants and whales and dolphins um, and dogs, maybe a few, there may be some others who have self-awareness. But as far as we know, humans are the only ones with the self-reflective capacity to actually know their deeper nature. And so it's not that the lower drives are bad or wrong. They're not at all. We need those to have a human experience in, we've got to have a body to, to exist in the physical realm. Without this, we can't have a human experience. So this isn't about one being right and the other being wrong. It's just that um, humans have the potential to go beyond 
living a good life as an ego self. And we, as far as we know, are the only beings who have even that potential. And so this is a potential of the human condition to go beyond that. So this is where the enlightenment drive comes in and then our relationships serve that. Our social engagement serves that. And so there doesn't have to be, the potential is that those drives don't have to conflict, but the enlightenment drive is leading and the others are following. So the, the centers then work as building blocks. The, it's ideal to have the belly center really be solid and then the heart can feel supported. What most of us have is head center. You know, most of us are so head-based, so thought-based, and it's not always in a way that is, is um, open spiritually, but there's so much going on with thinking. And even just getting our energy down into the body where we're spending some, putting some attention there. That's why mindfulness of the body is so wonderful because it brings the awareness and attention out of the thinking and into the body. But um, having, there's a building blocks kind of thing that can happen where if the belly center is strong, then our heart can be supported and opening. And the heart is often, you know, it depends on the person. Some people really lead with their heart center and are very in touch with that. But there can be a lot of pain in the heart center. And so what happens often is people have head and belly but the heart isn't working. So there's, there's a lot of wobbling that can happen there. So really the ideal is to have the stacking of the center so that they are all functioning spiritually and physically as in our life in the world, that we can manage our life in a physical body as a human with loved ones, with jobs, with contributing, all these other things that we need to do as a human to live unless we're supported by, you know, this is why when we come out from behind the monastery walls, we aren't supported anymore financially. We have to make our own living. We have to have mortgages and things. It gets complicated. So um, having those when they're functional, then there's the possibility that the, the, um, the Mo Center, which is up here, can open in such a way that becomes more stable and allows for more access to what is beyond the physical dimension. And in Buddhism, we have what is known as the formless realm or, or the immaterial realms. These are considered actual realms of existence in Buddhism. And I do have a talk that I've given um, on how that maps over to the diamond approach understanding of non-duality. Um, but, uh, this is where, you know, if our centers aren't aligned, it makes it very hard to have really an ongoing sense of stability in our functioning, um, from our deeper nature. So there is a relationship to the Enneagram with this. Um, for those of you who work with the Enneagram, where one of our drives is normally predominant. And you'll see that when, if you look at the Enneagram, how many, any of you work with the Enneagram at all? Okay, so if you're interested in that, I've given talks there on Dharma Seed on, on that. 
Um, but uh, one of the types is the strongest and you don't even need the Enneagram to kind of go, yeah, this is the, this is the instinctual drive that is the strongest for me. And it really colors, if you look at your life, the whole trajectory of your life, you can really see, yeah, this is the one that gets the most attention for me. So like somebody who has a, the one-on-one -on -one drive, you know, the sexual instinct, it's not about sex necessarily. It's more about that, that importance we place on having that one-on-one -on -one relationship that we feel a safety when we're in a partnership. And when we're not in one, there isn't safety or sometimes people will reject, they, they have drive as active because they've rejected and pushed against those things. But there's just a lot of attention and a lot of our mind share gets put on that drive. So let's see, anything else I wanted to say about that? Yeah, so anyway, so the centers are, it's helpful to be aware of this as we're doing our practice and we can investigate um, what's going on there through using Vipassana, which is wonderful. So the belly center then is the foundation, all the instincts, all the drives, including the enlightenment drive, I believe, come from the self-preservation instinct. And um, meditation actually really helps with this center because it builds the will. So the, the belly center, like, you know, when we talk about um, taking action. Action comes from the belly and meditation, we're doing something we have to come back to over and over and over again. We have to stay with our object. There's a certain determination that gets cultivated. So a lot of meditation is actually designed to build the belly center. And in Zen, I know they, they talk about the hara, you know, so it's actually discussed in Zen and Theravada Buddhism, we don't really talk about, you know, there isn't really any work with the centers, but there is in Zen, at least with the belly. And so this is part of what's going on in the center is, is our, our sense of being able to act and to have will to stay with something to be determined. And, um, and the center also has to do with embodiment, with really living with living what we know and being here, being in the body, not being lost in thought, but actually being embodied with our feet on the ground. So the legs are also part of the center. Are we, are we, do we have our feet on the ground or are we kind of bobbing around? Like I have a friend who says sometimes that she, there's a quote, I'm not sure who it's from, but that, um, that he lived a short distance from his body it's some famous literary quote, but you know, she says, yeah, I, I used to live a short distance from my body. So the, the belly center really helps us be um, embodied in the body, really here. It's about physical existence. So a lot of the, the body-based practices, Qigong and martial arts, you know, martial arts really focus on the belly center. All of these help us with the belly center and to be embodied. Now, what happens is the self-preservation instinct gets laminated onto our ego self. And so this is part of why when we somebody relates to us in a way that isn't consistent with our self-images of who we are, like say, I think I'm a nice person and somebody tells me I've been a jerk you know, or they give me feedback that I was mean or something. 
I don't want to hear that because it it doesn't it's not consistent with my self image and this is where people can get very triggered if somebody does something that that runs up against their own identity to the point where you know you look at road rage incident where somebody goes out to get a a box of milk from the grocery store and somebody cuts them off in traffic, they take it personally, like this is a personal affront and they kill the person in a road rage incident. I mean, talk about being identified with your ego self to the point where there's no space. So that's that person's self-preservation instinct was most likely activated that they felt a slight that they had to go and defend against. So this is how we can see that that sense of being like if somebody again you know with the public speaking our hearts racing we're exhibiting all of the phenomena that we would have when a saber-toothed tiger was chasing us our biology hasn't kept up with evolution so we still feel like when our ego self is threatened in some way that we might die you know, we could, uh, we could get flushed, we could feel like we want to kill the person, um, we could feel like we're going to die inside because we're being shamed in some way. All of these are ways that our, our self-preservation instinct, we're trying to preserve the ego self, because we become identified with that as what we are. And in Buddhism, really, this is what the Buddha was pointing at. I mean, he's pointing at a lot of things, but part of what he was pointing at is this is all a, a structure in your consciousness. The ego self isn't what you are. It's not even real. It's, it's the structure in consciousness. So when somebody has a no self experience, they're seeing through that structure. But we're so identified with that structure because of the self-preservation instinct. What was originally meant to keep the body alive has now become attached to our psychology. So again, this is part of why it's important to see when we're triggered, oh yeah, I, my self-preservation instinct is, you know, it's fight, flight, or freeze. I'm in fight, flight, or freeze mode because somebody told me something I didn't like. I'm not actually at risk of death here. And yet my body and everything in me is, is behaving as if I'm at risk of death because somebody said something about me that I didn't, that, I, that hurt or that I enraged me or something. So this is how we can see that. Um, signs of that somebody's main type is self-preservation. Now we all have all three instincts, obviously, but if, if this is the main one, people will have things. And again, none of this is wrong. It's just a way of kind of going, hmm, is this my main drive? Um, food can be a big thing. A lot of particular, very particular about food or a food obsession or a rejection of food. You know, it's really more about the, the, emphasis we place on it, even like monastics could have a food obsession by rejecting any kind of uh, control over food. So it's really more about like our orientation could be about our environment, having to have our environment really a particular way or we get really disturbed about it, that there, there's like, it's very, we have a lot of attachment to that. Um, or with money, 
had never having enough. Like when I was in the business world or you look out there and, you know, the captains of industry, it doesn't matter how many millions they have. They're never going to feel safe. And I've, I've had, you know, I've had clients like this where it didn't matter how much they were still workaholics or people who reject money. There's a pride in not having any money. That's just as much of an attachment. So this is, these are all signs that the self-preservation instinct is, is maybe you know, a primary drive, but we all have this to some degree. So then how do we work with it? Um, well, with all of these, especially the three that are in the body, the Vipassanas would be to me the main first way of feeling into that center, just what I did with you in the meditation. So I, probably all of you know Vipassana and we're, we're going with our curiosity and attention and feeling that area and understanding what's happening there and, and noticing like, say you're feeling the belly and there's a tightness and you stay with that. And it's like, oh, it's just, it feels like a fist. Hmm. And then you stay with it some more. Oh, well, what's, what's the fist about? I mean, you're not saying this to yourself, but you're just being curious. Oh, well, that fist, that's a no. That fist is a no. Hmm. Okay. It's a no. Let me be with the no. What's the no like? Well, the no feels adamant. There's an aversion in the no. It's kind of unpleasant. What's the no? And then, you know, we see that there's something in our life that we're really resisting, that we're not, that we're just saying no to. And it's, we can feel it in the body. So this is, this is just an example of how, how would we work with it? And then it might be like, hmm, do I, is my self-preservation instinct part of this? It might not be, but it's another way of understanding maybe what's going on when we're, when we're exploring maybe some strong sensation or emotions there that can help us um, disidentify from that so that we're not actually giving more identity to it and believing that this is what we are. And also seeing that whatever it is that's happening, it's not life-threatening, most likely. I mean, occasionally it is. We might have a health issue or some security issue that, that is really threatening our security. And, and then it's also good to be with it because it can help us not be reactive. We're never in our best place to function when we're in reactivity. So this can also help us reduce the reactivity and not just let it be running on autopilot. Body-based practices are excellent. Yoga, Qigong, martial arts, um, freeform dance, all of these get us in touch with the body in a way that we can be more embodied and have more sensitivity to what's going on inside. If some people aren't very able to feel what's going on in their body sensations, so practices like that can help. Sila can help in terms of wise living. Am I, am I coming from action that feels in integrity? So sila is a practice that can help. And samatha can help because we're building that will to, to put our attention on an object and stay with it. 
So really all of the practices could help with any center. Um, and, you know, it's in the way I was talking about, but I think Vipassana really is the one that that would be the starting place. So I think I'll stop there now and see if there are any comments or questions about any of this. Hi, Tina. Hi, Chris. Without the camera. Um, do you know um, anything about the, the short evolution of humanity, you know, from maybe a psychology perspective or sociological, you know, back, background or something? How is the brain evolving? Where was it, you know, 150 years ago with the Enlightenment Center and you know, where do you think it can be in 500 years from now? Do you wow. think, is there any sort of, do you, have you read anything uh, saying like it's already, we've seen it adapt in such a short amount of time or? Yeah, yeah, I love that question. Um, yeah, actually, uh, I haven't read anything necessarily. Um but one of the things that I've seen, and I've been a part of a group of spiritual teachers, we've been meeting for 12 years from all different traditions. So I, I do, you know, get to mingle around with teachers, other teachers, and, you know, hear some of their take on the world and so on. While there's clearly always been humans, or as far as we, maybe not always, but at least as far as written history, who had the Enlightenment drive, I mean, look at the Buddha you know, and all of his prior lives that he had before he was the Buddha and all the other spiritual figures throughout history who were very advanced, you know, in all traditions. So we can see that the Enlightenment drive has been with humanity a long time. What percentage of people? Now, the thing is that if you are living in a, a way that you are only you know, just getting by with survival, you're not going to have enough energy for the enlightenment drive. So I think up until recently, most of humanity spent a lot of their time just surviving between illness, wars with other tribes, getting enough food, climate, you know, um, health pandemics that they had no cures for, all these other things. People didn't have as much um, free time. So now that one of the luxuries is we do have more, you know, there are more and more humans who have their basic survival needs met. But even now on the planet, there are many humans who don't, and they're not going to have a, the ability to have practice, most likely because they're just so busy surviving. So one of the things that's happened lately, and probably the last like 30, 30 years with the human rights movement and all of uh, all of that, as well as advances in um, societal advances, is that more and more people who aren't monastics, more and more householders are really inclining themselves towards a deep spiritual practice while they're living a normal life. That's one of the cool things about our era is that that is happening for the first time ever, that we have both the means and we have the time and the resources. I mean, think all of you here, you know, think of the good fortune, the good karma that you have to be able to practice that you can be here tonight, you know, instead of being in a war zone or, or starving somewhere, 
like so many other humans are, you know, so we're so fortunate. And more and more people are waking up. I hear this from teachers, even in traditional, you know, like in the in some of the traditional monastic centers and Theravadan Buddhism, even look at all the people who are doing practice. So, you know, one of the things that I find very inspiring, and this is my belief about the human situation, isn't that we're trying to get off the wheel and abandon the physical realm. In, in Tibetan Buddhism, the belief is that what determines whether we experience samsara or nirvana is our view, our view of reality. And imagine if Every human even just had a spiritual practice, not, not, uh, not an awakened or anything, just was trying, just was meditating and doing their best to have a practice. The physical realm, this planet would be a paradise. We wouldn't have wars where people were killing each other. Yes, there would be conflict, but we would find ways other than killing to deal with it. We wouldn't be leaving people without food. We've got plenty of food for everybody. You know, so that you ask about 500 years from now, if we make it through the stage where we have too much power and we can easily destroy ourselves, which isn't certain, more and more people are practicing. You look at the number of people out there who are meditating, it's astronomical. I mean, I have mixed feelings about the meditation apps, but two of my closest friends are using meditation apps and they meditate every day now. And I'm glad. So, you know, um, there's a lot that's wrong with the human condition right now, but this to me is the whole purpose of the human experience is for us to be able to know our deeper nature and live from that and to spiritualize the physical realm. The physical realm is dense and there's pain because we have bodies that have nerve endings so that we'll stay alive. And without this, we can't live in the physical realm. But if everybody was undertaking some kind of practice, this would be a paradise. So that is my vision and hope is that that is where humanity will be in 500 years. I like it. Hope I'm around to see it. Yeah, well, you know, we keep doing those rebirths. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Dan. Hi there. Hi, Dan. Um, do you have any particular recommendations for a uh, book or material from the Diamond Approach that specifically? goes through the before gosh i don't know what would be out there that's on the drive that's part of why i'm doing this because i get a lot of crossover people or people who are dabbling learning inquiry or something but aren't really wanting to be in the diamond approach you know i really don't know the answer to that um the inner journey home is the most complete book you might be able to look at the index and see if their drives are mentioned there that would probably be the best resource. Or go, you know what? If you went on, this is the answer. Go on to the, the Ridwan website. There's a glossary. And if you look at the glossary, it has quotes. You can look up the drives or the centers. 
and then see what if there are any books referenced and that would tell you exactly where some of those references would be. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, one thing I didn't mention that I'd like to include here is that the body is such a rich and multi-dimensional resource for our practice. And I've learned this um, through many years. I had a really difficult birth trauma that was pretty embedded in my actual tissues. And this is all pre-verbal. I almost died at birth. And so there was a lot of material there that got layered onto psychologically. And if we're feeling into the body, our, our personality patterning is held in the body. So if you're feeling body tensions, so it's, we can get good. And I'm, you probably all know this from Vipassana, you can feel what that tension pattern is holding. And it's a wonderful way of working with the body. Like, you know, if you had for years, just a tight place and in your right side, you know, we can actually feel into that in a way that not only can we feel what's going on in the body and the emotions and such, but we can feel what it is we're bracing against and what purpose that body pattern is holding. This is called body armor. And there's a whole, you know, Reikian psychology gets into all this, but, um, but we can do the same kind of thing with Vipassana especially where we can really feel into those tension patterns. Like on retreats, I hear this all the time from people that they notice, oh my gosh, my jaw is so tight. You know, they never noticed it, but when they go on a retreat, they'll feel these patterns and we can actually get a lot of amazing insight into what is being held there and how it links to our personality patterns. And at some point, even if we've worked through the psychology of that patterning, if we haven't worked through the holding in the body, the body patterns actually will keep triggering that psychological pattern. So the body is just such an amazing um, miracle, really, not just for the fact that we get to move around in it and have all these wonderful joys and experiences and such, but also on the spiritual path, it can really be um, a resource. And I'm, there's a book called The Body Knows the Score. I'm going to be listening to it on audiobook in a few weeks when I make a long drive, but it's, you know, I think it's one of the better books out there that relates to this. Um, so that was just one additional thing I wanted to say about uh, the body and the belly center, really uh, our whole body, the body is housed in the belly center of self-preservation because self-preservation instinct really is about the survival of the body and like, until it's laminated onto our psychology. Yes, and what is your name? Oh, you're muted. Hi, my name is Christina. Thank you so much for the Dharma talk. Oh, sure, uh, Christina. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Uh, you know, earlier you mentioned a type of practice called sila practice. 
Mm-hmm. I've never heard of that. What is the sila practice? Sure. Yeah, sila is part of Buddhism. It's one of the, there's sila, samatha, and vipassana. And then if you're doing Tibetan, there's there's rigpa. So there's, you know, kind of those stages. Sila is, sometimes it's translated as morality or ethics, but I don't really like that. And I don't see it that way. I think of it as wholesome living. So mm-hmm. it's about how we're living our lives off the cushion and are we living with consciousness? Are we living in integrity with what we know on the cushion and on our inner life? Are we living that off the cushion in our, in our life, in work, in our relationships and communication? In Buddhism, there's what's known as the precepts, which are training principles. They're not commandments, but they're training principles that help us bring consciousness to how we're living. So those can be helpful. You you can look that up online, the precepts. But Zila is really about wise living, bringing wisdom to how we're living our lives as humans, interacting with other humans and interacting with society and the world. How how are we, what are we eating? You know, and to me, I I really see it not as a rule-based practice like, Yes, everybody should be, no one should ever drink alcohol and everybody should be a vegetarian. I mean, those are wonderful aspirations and I've done those things. So I think they're good things to be doing, but it's really, you know, these are personal decisions that we need to keep reviewing periodically to feel what's right for us. Like somebody might be a vegetarian, I was a vegetarian for years And then as I got older, I just found I wasn't getting enough protein. So I had to reintroduce that. Maybe at some point now that there's all these great protein powders and things, I could be a vegetarian again. So I might do that, you know? So it's really, it's it's about what is right for you and even like not killing. Well, what about your pet? You know, I what if your pet is suffering horribly and is at the end of its life? Does that mean we should let that pet suffer for six months rather than giving it a merciful ending? You know, the Dalai Lama was once asked if somebody was coming at him and and his, you know, number one monk or something with a gun and going to shoot him. And the Dalai Lama had a gun. Would he shoot the person? And the Dalai Lama said, ask me that question when I'm in that situation. (laughs) He didn't say no. Mm -hmm. So this to me is where it's, that's what it's really about is feeling what's right for you and not being on autopilot or just going with the societal norms or even those around you so that you can feel that when you come to the meditation, well, first of all, to do it because it's the right thing to do, that's number one. But secondly, then when we come to our practice, we're not lost in regret and remorse and or, or maybe we didn't have the courage to do something that we now regret that we didn't do, that we just were held back. So when we come to the cushion, we don't have those things. We feel an integrity. So it actually helps our on the cushion practice as well. And all of these, they all support each other. So they sound really like separate, but they actually are quite um supportive of each other and they uh they are something that we come back to over and over and it might 
you know, it might be different at different times based on what's going on in our inner state and based on our life in the world. And, and um, so that that's the seal of practice. Thank you. Yeah, wholesome living. Thank you. Okay, Steve. Yeah, we have time. Okay, just a couple of things. One is you mentioned um, uh, the body knows the score and maybe a month ago, I just happened upon a podcast by Ezra Klein, who people may know. He's a journalist from New York Times. He has a podcast show and he actually interviewed Bessel van der Kolt. And um, it's uh, pretty, um, it's pretty uh, intense actually, I thought. Really? But, wow. Yeah, and there's a lot of information and, you know, he's a controversial character, but person. But anyways, I just thought I'd put that out there. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's good to know. I haven't read the book yet, so I don't really have an opinion, but I know it's quite well read, you know, yeah. it's, it's popular. Okay. And I know, I know we're out of time, but I, you know, you talked a lot about enlightenment, right? And I would just like maybe next time, just, um, it sounds like such a simple question, but what does it mean? I mean, everybody, everybody uses the word a lot and I have my own idea of what it means, but when you say enlightenment in, in the context like of tonight, what are you meaning? Just yeah. knowing yourself? You know? Well, in Buddhism and Theravadan Buddhism, there's four stages of awakening. I really like the Theravadan model. It's, it's simpler and there's a way to make it practical. So there's like the first stage of awakening isn't the same as enlightenment. So to be really clear, there's stages. So the first stage of awakening is, is called stream entry in, in Buddhism. And that's when we know there's a shift of identity from the ego self to uh, our deeper nature, which could be known as emptiness. And in other traditions, it's known as unity, but there's still a lot of ego material left. It's not gone, but there, what's changed is a shift of identity. So most traditions, there's some relationship to a shift of identity from knowing ourselves as just the body and the ego self, and that's it to knowing our deeper nature. So I'll just do this really quick. So what do, what do you see here? Maybe I've done this before here, but it's not yeah. a trick question. We're familiar with this. Four fingers. Okay. Yeah. So the four fingers, you know, it's going from the belief that this is all we are is the separate self to the something deeper. You know, and when our actual identity is now here and it's not just here, that is awakening. Yes, and then that deep, but I can say more about it next time because we're out of time and I want to yeah. honor that. But I, um, I appreciate the question. And because, you know, we're talking about the enlightenment drive, I think it's it's good to, you know, do a, a short um, explanation of that so that there's a common sense of what at least I'm talking about when I'm saying that. Yeah. Thank so thanks for the question. Okay. Well, good to be with you all next time. I'm going to be talking about the sexual instinct, which has gotten a lot of people into trouble, people who have legitimate awakening and they still haven't worked with that instinct and have made, have actually harmed a lot of people because of it. So this is a powerful drive that creates new humans. We need to learn to work with it if we're going to be out in the world and to, um, to work with it skillfully. So I'll be talking about that drive next time. So be well and may you um, may you feel the security 
of your own deeper nature and its indestructibility. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.